Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 102 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Sunset Boulevard on your I Just Want to Work Again podcast. I'm Andy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vos. Happy New Year, Mandy. Happy New Year, Matthew. We are starting year three. Wait, is this the first episode that we're doing in January? Uh, I think the week comes in the middle. Yeah, so this is the first of January. It's definitely not December. It's definitely not early December. Definitely January. Um, <laughs> yes. I am asking when this one is actually coming out because I didn't look at the schedule. This is coming out on the 1st of January. Okay, so it really is the 1st of January. Yes. It is Happy New Year. We are starting year three of Pop Culturally Deprived. Yes. So, Happy New Year. Let's have some drinks. Be careful. The floor's slippery. I just had it waxed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Matthew, I love you. This floor used to be wood, but I had it changed. Valentino said there's nothing like tiles. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it was a pretty great floor, you have to admit. Mm. Yeah, so that was, uh, for me, the reason for picking this film. I I basically pulled up a list of what films have interesting New Year's sequences on it. Oh, okay. And uh, this was on the list alongside Doctor Who and The Apartment, I think. That's right. You did tell me that whenever you suggested this one. I completely yes. forgot that <laughs> when I was watching it. There is method here. So uh, I will completely admit this is my pick to have a film on. Um, I watched this as part of my 2018 Watch 365 films because I was also trying to watch Oscar winners, significant films, classic films that I'd missed. So this was one of them. And this was one that I watched and I, I was just absorbed by in watching it. This is a truly wonderful film for me. It, it took me by surprise just how good I, I found it and enjoyed it. But I knew it was not necessarily one you would jump at. So I think I insisted a little bit. A little. A little. Um, How come you haven't watched Sunset Boulevard then? (sighs) I hate black and white movies, okay? (laughs) I mean, we've alluded to that this whole past two years, but I don't think I've ever actually said it. But yeah, I mean, that's really it. We have covered two two black and white movies before. So we did Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. And we did Clerks. (laughs) (laughs) So... There's a range when I'm talking black and white, but also we've not done a, in inverted commas, classic black and white movie. A movie from certainly before we were born, certainly before the kind of 70s era of modern filmmaking starts. Right. Yeah. That's what I mean when I say black and white movies. I I dislike black and white movies that were made in the era of black and white movies. It's like yeah. Schindler's List was in the 90s. Exactly. Clerks was in the 90s. Um, I mean, I hated Clerks, don't get me wrong, but I didn't hate it because it was black and white. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I am a judgy, discriminatory, like, (laughs) prejudiced against movies person. Absolutely. Um, We we will start doing more classics, maybe. We'll see. uh, And build up towards the Steve Martin film Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is a black and white movie made up of other black and white movies. That... Sounds horrifying. <laughs> He's basically cut sequences from many, many classic film noir stories and turned them into one film with him, like, doing interstitial stuff. Wow. If it's you can re- see my face right now, my eyes are huge. It has one of my favorite moments in cinema in it. So maybe, maybe. We might have to get me there slowly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, 
we are here to talk about Sunset Boulevard, though. So, Sunset Boulevard is a 1950 film noir directed by Billy Wilder, starring Gloria Swanson and William Holder. It was written by Wilder and Charles Brackett, with further story work added by D.M. Marshman Jr. The film won three Academy Awards, Best Writing, Best Art Direction and Best Music, having been nominated for 11 awards in total. That was, I think, a record number of nominations, except for All About Eve, which that that year also took all the major awards and had more nominations. It had 14. Yes. But yes, it was a record until All About Eve. Yeah, a a little bit hard. I think most of the years that Sunset Boulevard is released, it probably takes the top awards. Mm -hmm. But there was another film that is along some of the same lines that appeals. And I think there was a thing about how um, Gloria Swanson didn't win Best Actress and the main actress in All About Eve, whose name I can't remember, didn't win Best Actress because the sort of quality of the performance and the style of performance was so similar, it split the vote and allowed the third-placed person to win. Oh, okay. Mm. That makes sense. I I think that was just the theory from Gloria Swanson, but, you know, it's believable. Yeah. I I did read um, today that for movies that have been nominated for all four of the main acting categories, this movie is one of only three that didn't win any of the acting awards. Right. Which is a terrible thing to be known for, I think. Mm. We often mention films being put on the Library of Congress National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. This was one of the first 25 films selected when they started the registry in 1989. The other one we've watched on that list is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. After its release, reviewer Philip T. Hartung predicted its lasting appeal when he wrote, The Library of Congress will be glad to have in its archives a print of Sunset Boulevard. There were allegations of plagiarism following the film's release from uh, similar story ideas, but both major lawsuits were dismissed. And Sunset Boulevard was adapted into a musical, which launched in 1993. There was a proposed movie adaptation of that musical in development. Uh, Glenn Close appears to have been one of the most popular actresses to have done the part over the years. Yes, and I did a quick Google search, and it looks like they are possibly tying or trying to tie Glenn Close to the movie adaptation. Nice. That would be good. All right. I am going to assume that there are many of you who have not seen this movie because it is from 1950. (laughs) But that may be wrong because Matthew's laughing at me. Because we have such a cool hip young audience. (laughs) (laughs) So they're all out there on their skateboards. (laughs) That's what what the cool kids do, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right, I mean, this movie came out before my mom was born, so, I mean, come on. Anyway, it is about an aging, silent film queen refuses to accept that her stardom has ended, so she hires a young screenwriter to help set up her movie comeback. The screenwriter believes he can manipulate her, but he soon finds out he's wrong, and the screenwriter's ambivalence about their relationship and her unwillingness to let go leads to a situation of violence, madness, and death. Is that your summary, or is that from somewhere? No, that's Google's. Okay. IMDb's was terrible. It was just like one line. I don't even remember what it was, but it it did not like cover any part of the movie, I think, except for an aging silent film star wants to make a comeback or something like that. Okay. It's so this one kind of covers most of it. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it puts the 
agency or the or the the priority of the story onto Norma, mm-hmm. whereas the story is Joe's story. It is about uh, an actor, uh, a writer about to leave Hollywood, finds an aging film star and decides to take advantage of her. Mm, but you yeah. can't help but argue she steals this film as soon as she comes in. Oh, she absolutely does. <laughs> this is her film. <laughs> she is a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. Okay. How were you able to watch the film? Where is it available around there? Um, I had to rent it on Amazon, but it is actually available digitally. Nice. Has been meticulously restored, so says Amazon. Okay. Uh, Over here, it's available on Sky Cinema. I didn't see it on any of the other services, sadly. Of course it's on Sky Cinema. Everything is on Sky Cinema. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They've done pretty well. They they have, of the 400 and something films I watched last year, they were almost half. I think at least a third was Sky Cinema. I I mean, and a lot of that was not very good stuff because I was like, oh, there's a new film. Let's watch that because it's got Aubrey Plaza in it. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, that kind of thing. So, you know, yeah. I've also learned not to really trust the blurbs they write, because they're really good at writing blurbs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. The film choices are not always that good. Okay. Uh, Sunset Boulevard, directed by Billy Wilder, starring Gloria Swanson. What is your experience of Wilder and Swanson? Uh, Billy Wilder, I looked at his filmography, and I recognized the names of some of the films he's been involved in, but I've not seen any of them. Uh, he directed several Marilyn Monroe films, and I've never actually seen a Marilyn Monroe movie. Okay. Have I admitted that on this podcast before? I mean, you know, a hundred and something episodes, probably. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, those were the ones that I immediately recognized. You know, he did Some Like It Hot, and there was something else. I don't remember which one it is now. Um, Gloria Swanson, I did not know her name. I don't think I'd ever heard it before, but I have absolutely seen her face. She is the one who, when I see silent films referenced, it's usually accompanied with a picture of her. Right. I don't know if it's because her she's just so distinctive or if she really was the silent film star. Mm. But to me, she's the face of silent film stars. When I think of silent film, her face is the one that I see in my head. Okay. Okay. I think we might talk a little bit about the transfer from silent to uh, talkies in a bit, maybe. Okay. Uh, yeah, Billy Wilder made a lot, a lot of films, got nominated for Best Director a number of times, uh, did some good stuff. Good on him. Um, Sunset Boulevard itself is famous for a couple of things. Obviously, as a film, it is very famous. It became a musical, and there is that line, the line that ends the film. That yep. is incredibly famous. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Have you seen the musical? Do you know of the musical? Had you heard the line before? The first I heard of the musical was when you asked this question in our notes. Okay. And it completely baffled me that there could possibly be a musical. And then I looked it up and saw that Glenn Close starred as Norma Desmond. And I thought that was pretty fantastic. Mm. I mean, I'm really still not sure how I feel about a musical adaptation of, of this movie. But, I mean, it's Glenn Close. Yeah. Um, as far as the ending line, are there people out there who haven't heard it? I had no idea where it came from or what the context of it was. Mm-hmm. But I feel like everybody has to have heard that line. Now, I want to ask you if you were surprised when you got there, but I also know it came up in the GIF that you put out. I uh, would have been <laughs> if I hadn't done that GIF search. Right. Like, I was 
floored when I found that gif. I was like, oh, okay. And then I was like, I wonder what the context is. And I, the whole time I was thinking, oh, she's actually going to do this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wrong about that. Mm-hmm. God, this movie's dark. Yeah, I, I did not know this was the film that line comes from. So when she said it at the very last thing and then does that creep towards the camera to blur. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's an astonishing ending. Let's get into it in a minute. Um, <laughs> yeah, the music, the musical I'd heard of, I've not seen it either. Um, I have a friend, one of Catherine's best friends, her bridesmaid, uh, is, I think her uh, dramatic group is doing a performance of it. So we might go and see it next year. Very cool. Mm. So Sunset Boulevard, did you enjoy it? Well, I didn't hate it. Okay. So that's something. Okay. It's not Hunchback. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Clerks either. <laughs> um, honestly, I think I do actually like it, mm-hmm. but it's just so different from what I'm used to that I was unsure of how I was supposed to watch it. And so it's taken me a bit of time to process it. Okay. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Either what about it is different or what makes you have to watch it in a different way? The main thing that I struggled with was Gloria Swanson's acting to start Mm. with. Because I was unsure if this was intended to be a serious film or if it was supposed to be intentionally overacted, melodramatic, crazy. And, And so I didn't really know how to feel about it. Right. And it turns out it's intended to be a very serious role. You know, it was a character choice to play the character that way. And now that I understand that and I've had some time to kind of sit with it, I think it's, I mean, it's brilliant. She absolutely stole the show. It just took me a little bit to get there. Now, is that your feeling on old films or your lack of familiarity with old films so you thought oh yeah old films so people acted this badly but actually it turns out it's a almost a plot thing that she is a bit cuckoo and acts that way yeah i wasn't sure if this was standard like if i go watch another movie from the 50s am i gonna see the same thing but Mm. i didn't think that was the case i mean i have seen like it's a wonderful life which is an old black and white movie that i enjoy (laughs) there's one you know, and and so it just – I struggled with it just largely because of the unfamiliarity of the source material that I was looking at. The right. the era is foreign to me. The, the subject matter is foreign to me, particularly because it takes place when it does. And, and so I kind of had to readjust, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But once I did, it was, I mean, from the beginning, I really adored Gloria Swanson. I did. Even whether or not she was like overly acting or if she was just playing this character that way, it still worked. Just it kind of worked in two different feelings. Like it told two different stories. Okay. Depending on how you Mm. interpreted it. And so either way, I thought Gloria Swanson was wonderful and I adored her. Got it. The um the other thing that was different for me in this movie is the voiceover itself. Hmm. Like not not the fact that there is a voiceover and not the the fact that it's narrated by a dead man. I mean, we've done two movies that I can think of offhand on this show where that's happened. 
mm. um, Looper and American Beauty both. Looper. Yeah, I, I could think of American Beauty. Mm. Um, but the voiceover did a lot of the heavy lifting in this movie. Mm-hmm. It it told us what we were supposed to feel. It told us what the characters were thinking and feeling. There was a lot of voiceover while Joe was just walking down the street or while Norma was on the screen. Um, and, and so the movie itself didn't tell its own story. The okay. voiceover did. Mm. And that I don't know if that's a story storytelling style from the period of this movie or if that's something unique to this movie, but it's very different from how we see storytelling today. Right. So you'd expect to see a bit more about even him walking his interactions with people or something happening that shows, okay, he's a bit down and out. He's being harassed. He's not going anywhere. He's thinking about moving home. Right. I Mm, I wish I had written down some of the lines that really made me think, I wish I was seeing this instead of hearing it. Right. Um, but, but they were, Mm. a lot of it was mundane, just, I don't know, like when he was talking about when he was going to the new year's party and he's standing in the rain hitchhiking and we're getting this whole voiceover about what he's thinking and feeling. And I'm like, they could have done that differently. I think, um, I know there was one when he was going to the drugstore on one of the many occasions that he ended up in that store. Mm. (laughs) Um, but it, it was very much telling us instead of showing us. And I am used to a movie showing me things because yeah. that's why I'm watching it. Mm. Can you see why it's different? Perhaps that, like I say, the language of cinema has evolved somewhat and, and that it's changed in that way. Or does it detract from the film that it is so different? No, I don't think it does. I think it just, it, it took a fair amount of processing and and reframing some context. Okay. And, you know, I did some reading about it. I watched a couple YouTube videos about it and began to really recognize how important this film is in the history of film. Mm. And once I started to kind of see that impact, I was able to look at it with much more appreciation and understanding than just sitting back and saying, oh, well, that's different. And I'm not going to try to figure out why. Yeah. So taking it in and taking it on, on its face value. So judge it for what the film itself is, not what you would like it to be, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think okay. so. Mm. Uh, was there Were there elements of this that you could compare to a modern film and say as much as, you know, there's, there's this that would be different now or could be done better or I'd expect to see done differently. There is also all the rest of this that I go... Uh, okay, yeah, cinema either hasn't changed or this film is of such high quality that it is uh, somewhat timeless. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think this whole story could be retold and retold now. Mm. Um, probably the only tweak to be made would be the character of Max. I okay. think his character would be done differently. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure how. But when I think of this movie, his character feels the most antiquated to me Mm. everything else feels very timeless you know the down and out writer who's trying to work with someone else who wants to be a writer the the aging film star who is no longer relevant but is desperate to be relevant again you know those things are timeless yeah 
Why do you think Max is done in the way he is in this film? I honestly don't know. His okay. character confounds me. Mm. How so? It blew my mind when he delivered the line that he was also her first husband. <laughs> yeah. Like, I still don't understand the bearing that has on the story, why it was necessary, why that even needed to be there. But, uh, I mean, sorry, do you do you have a thought about that? I, I don't have an answer. I have my thoughts. And and the, the musical beat that comes in with the revelation is, this is a revelation. And she's turned you into a servant. It was I who asked to come back, humiliating as it may seem. I could have continued my career. Only I found everything unendurable after she had left me. You see, I was her first husband. Right. (laughs) No, it's not that musical beat, but it's that kind of thing. Like, they know this is a moment. People in the cinema will go, (gasps) Right. We did not see that coming. And I think that's why, I think because they want to preserve the revelation, you can't have him doing too much. You can't have him hinting at a romantic relationship. Because otherwise you would potentially guess it. um, Mm -hmm. or, or, Or be thinking in that way. Um, and you can't consider him part of the industry. Because, again, you'd sort of go, oh, he was her first major director, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think they have to keep him, um, oh, I want to say servile. I'm not sure that's quite the right word, but very blank and very, I am just the butler. So that when it's a revelation, it's, oh, wow, and he's got his own story going on that we've not seen anything of. Right. Something like that. Right. I mean, I think the character could be updated, but it would it would have to significantly change. Like the loyalty to her would remain, mm-hmm. but the circumstances of that loyalty, I think, would have to change. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while now. Okay. <laughs> so one of the things that I, I found that was fascinating about this movie is, I mean, this movie is Hollywood taking a dig at Hollywood, essentially. I think one of the reviews, it, it was... The Hollywood Reporter, I think, or maybe the New York Times. I don't remember. One of them said this is Hollywood at its worst, told by Hollywood at its best, which I think is pretty spot on. Oh, that's a good line, isn't it? Yeah. It is. That's that's a really good line. And I was reading about how the writers and and the director, they knew that this was not going to be received well by the studios. And so they submitted the script to Paramount in small chunks, just like a few pages at a time right? so that they wouldn't know how far it went with its digs at Hollywood. Mm. They had, I think submitted it as if they were writing a comedy called a can of beans, (laughs) which I don't know why I find that hilarious, but I do. And that's how they got it made essentially because they started shooting when only a third of the script had been written anyway. And I just, I find it fascinating the links they went through to kind of hide what they were doing, particularly since Paramount is actually the studio in the movie as well. Yeah, because it, it, it is Paramount, isn't it? They use their mm-hmm. own name. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Paramount is also the studio that Gloria Swanson did silent films with and Cecil B. DeMille Mm. directed Gloria Swanson doing films for Paramount. It's all very meta. Yeah. And all all about Eve is about 
Hollywood stars as well. Uh, and this is one of the things that, that you'll notice, um, why they both did so well at the Oscars. Hollywood likes films about Hollywood. Things like A Star is Born, Singing in the Rain, The Player, La La Land, um, The Artist. Mm. Hollywood likes to see itself represented because it doesn't often get represented well. Well, it certainly didn't get represented well here. No. <laughs> I mean, I think it was represented honestly. Yeah, I, th- I think well. that's yeah, I think that's what I mean. It often gets represented glamorously, right? But not necessarily. Yes, that's what it's like being here, right? And yeah, this is this is very much a, a film about Hollywood in transition. Mm-hmm. And I, I bring up Singing in the Rain particularly because that is a... Have you seen Singing in the Rain? I have. I, I assume the, like, splashy, colourful musical <laughs> that's awfully romantic is one you've seen. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, um, because that is about the transition from silent films to talkies. And, mm-hmm. and it, it is exactly what they went through. The fact that people didn't know how to act with microphones. They didn't know how to not, you know, move their jaws and they had to hide microphones and they... they had to learn whole new skills, which is why a whole generation of actors who were good at silent movies suddenly didn't have work or found they had to adapt and change very, very quickly. Right. Um, the actress that they wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. Hang on. Let me find her name. Um, they wanted uh, a woman named Pola Negri. Negri? Okay. Negri, I don't know, N-E-G-R-I. They wanted her to do it because she had been a silent film star who lost her career when they switched to talking movies because right. of her accent. She was from Poland, and her heavy uh, Polish accent was so thick she couldn't do the dialogue. Okay. And they contacted her to do this, and unfortunately, they still thought her accent was too heavy. Uh, okay. So she didn't uh, get mm. cast in this one either. But I think... Gosh, that's tough. I can't imagine being a star and then all of a sudden, because they change the focus of your work, all of a sudden you can't do that job anymore. Yeah. I mean, we talk about industrialization and automation and robotics, but it's another example of technology coming in Mm -hmm. and changing who's relevant for the work and so on. Um but I, I do like this thing that she was so successful, as as Gloria Swanson was, but then hasn't done anything since and has faded into this obscurity. Right. Um, I, I love that very early on he makes the reference to Miss Havisham. A neglected house gets an unhappy look. This one had it in spades. It was like that old woman in Great Expectations, that Miss Havisham in her rotting wedding dress and her torn veil, taking it out on the world because she'd been given the go-by. I, I love when a film, or, or any story of this sort of thing, is paying homage to something and references it as, as well. Like, you are much better off making the reference because otherwise it just seems like you're stealing. Whereas right. if, you, if you say, oh, it's like this thing, it's a quick way to understand it in the same way we use quotes and references to things to each other. Um, right. And it sort of adds a layer of sheen of, oh, they know their stuff. And it, it is beautiful when he drives up to the house and the house is, it, it looks bad. Even even in the black and white, it looks like something out of the Adams Family. It's got that <laughs> kind of vibe to it. 
Yeah, it definitely, you know, looked abandoned and falling apart. I think one of my notes was the inside of that house has been kept up so much better than the outside. Mm. And it, and it opens, the sort of main opening shot, it, well, it opens with the Paramount logos, uh, Paramount Pictures logo fading onto a painted curb that says Sunset Blood. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, which is a nice way to do the intro, the the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get the opening credits, which I will say, I do love films that have opening credits. One of the things I found last year is I love when films get to have a couple of minutes at the beginning where you've got the credits going. And quite often they also use it as an opportunity to sort of set the scene, introduce characters, show something going on, set the vibe of what the film's going to be. I, I, I feel it's something we miss these days by having to have the title and then you're into the film. Right. I like that kind of scene setting thing. But it, it, it opens with that and then it goes to the swimming pool. Um, and the police arriving and the poor schmuck who's in the pool. And that opening shot is so weird of him fa- uh, face down in the swimming pool and it's ostensibly looking up and you can see him and you can see the, the police past him looking in. Mm-hmm. And when we, when we talked about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, I talked about how they, they had a, a shot that was from the bottom of a wishing well looking up at, uh, Snow White. And it was them sort right. of showing off, we can do stuff that you can't do in live action. Right. Um, and this, this was exactly the thing that made me think of that because I remember that, um, they couldn't actually do a shot from the bottom of the swimming pool to see him face down and then see the police. They sunk a camera in a box to keep it okay and keep it filming. But the shot came out really badly and didn't work. So they ended up having to put a mirror at the bottom of the swimming pool, like a massive, massive mirror, mm-hmm. and then film it from above. So the police, you can see, are actually the police reflected on the top of the surface. Yeah, I still don't entirely understand. Like, I can't visualize the angle that they would have had to do that to not get the camera in the reflection. Mm. Like, I looked at it after I realized, after you said that's what they did, I looked at the picture and I was like, I cannot figure out how they did this because they didn't have you know like photoshop back then <laughs> they couldn't just cut it out yeah. I don't know, maybe they could but it, it seems like magic yeah i i think angles and mirrors are something they because the, the mirror itself might have been at an angle of course ah oh, that's also a possibility um, yeah mirrors and angles are, are one of the best camera tricks around there is the wonderful bit where she is looking at herself in the mirror but the way they're filming it it looks like the Norma in the mirror is looking at the camera. So she's obviously having to stand at quite an angle. The camera's right. at quite an angle and the mirror's at an angle to everything. But you just have this thing of she's looking at the mirror, the mirror Norma is looking at us. Right. Really yep. good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for that sort of thing. Um, but I, I, yeah, I like that whole opening and it opens with Joe. It opens with Joe face down in the swimming pool telling us You see, the body of a young man was found floating in the pool of her mansion with two shots in his back and one in his stomach. Nobody important, really. Just a movie writer with a couple of B pictures to his credit. The poor dope. He always wanted a pool. Well, in the end, he got himself a pool. Only the price turned out to be a little high. That poor dope. Yeah, exactly. It's not clear it's him, is it? No, I didn't know it was him until the end. Mm. Because the shot, the shot that they give you of his face at the beginning is one, it's very quick. And two, he's floating in water. And so his facial expression is not the same as when you see like 
Joe standing there. Mm, and his so hair's I, all wavy and yeah. Right. I honestly did not realize the entire movie that this was being narrated by a dead man and he was the one telling the story. I was trying to figure out who it was. I was like, is that somehow Artie? I was like, that's the only other young person we've seen who this could possibly be. And then it was Joe. Mm. And I, I think that works better. I think it works either way, whether you know it's him or not. I think it works well if you know it's him and it's a thing we've seen in uh, American Beauty, mm-hmm. who tells us he's going to die. Um, I feel like Great Gatsby, we know what the end moment of that is going to be from the opening. And I think if you know, it's interesting because you know what's coming. And if you don't know, it's an even better surprise. Right. That he's narrating it as well, because that, that's definitely not a standard cinematic thing, like you say. And then we cut into his life. And we have his misadventure with uh, people trying to claim his car, him trying to get some money, and eventually, eventually, eventually getting to the house. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it's almost one of the most important things for the film to work well, is that we are following him as our protagonist. He is the main character we're following, and it is his story. Because it means when he's introduced to Norma and all the time that he's getting to know her, she is sinister. We're not quite sure what's going on with her. We're not quite sure if she's all there. We're sort of learning more about her history as time goes on. And then they have the New Year's party, which takes the dramatic turn, um, both with him disappearing off and having to come back to her and deciding to stay with her at that point uh, Mm -hmm. and becoming more than just a professional relationship and it's from that point it starts changing and you start learning a lot more about her and he starts seeing it's not just that she's got these waxworks coming it's that she's trying to live something that she's not necessarily able to live anymore and then you finally go to paramount pictures and suddenly you go wow they do not treat her well and things are really bad in this situation right and by the, by the very end of it, for me, and this is the thing that really sells the film, she has gone from being this strange, sinister character to incredibly sympathetic and very sad. Like the, the, the whole thing with the film is all through her life, men in particular have mistreated her. They have taken advantage of her looks, of her acting. They have not told her the truth. They have told her she's going to be a great star. She's going to be a star forever. People are always going to love her, which clearly was not the case. They have lied to her that people keep writing to her now and she's still adored by thousands and so on. So she's not able to grow past that. They're lying to her that she's going to write a great film now and take it, you know, the way Joe takes advantage of her. Cecil B. DeMille lies to her that yes, he's going to make a film and work it out and will be great again. And you just get to the end and you think, this girl has never had a chance. Hmm. And the whole thing is just to go, to, to see a character go from starting off, just the way she holds her mouth slightly open and does that, the gesticulation every time she talks. Because she's a silent actress, she talks with you know, her physicality. And then to go to the end where she's still doing all that and you just think, ah, oh, you know, her... her she could have been so much more and she's never been allowed to get past what they made her and then discarded her as. Mm-hmm. Okay, so two things from all of that Go are on. unrelated. Okay. <laughs> the shorter one is, it didn't occur to me until you just said that, that her physicality was a result of her being a silent film star. Mm. I had noticed the way she used her hands a lot. They were 
almost creepy. They were very claw-like a Mm. lot. And it didn't occur to me that she was doing it because she's accustomed to finding meaning in movement rather than words. Mm. So that's an interesting way to look at that. That, That's the way I take that, to be honest. I don't know that that's why she acted that way, but... Yeah, no, it it makes perfect sense, though. Um, The second one is I I found your use of the word sinister interesting Mm. because I... I would never have said sinister. Okay. But then I I thought about my notes watching this movie, and I realized how much of it I thought felt very stalkery. I think I used kidnappish at one point. Like, it Mm. it felt like she was essentially kidnapping Joe. And so maybe sinister is the right word, but I'm having a hard time. And maybe at this point it's just because I've watched the whole movie finding – the word for her to be sinister because oh this honestly this movie is so sad Mm. it's very dark and it is very sad her entire life is just sad it's desperate i think one of the lines that we got in joe's voiceover was whenever she whenever she suspected he was getting bored she would put on live shows for him. Yeah. And that's when we cut to her dancing on a table. You know, she, it's just so sad. She is essentially degrading herself because she thinks that's what she needs to do to keep somebody's attention in her life Mm. because she wants so desperately to matter. And this entire movie is about her quest to matter. Yeah, that is a lovely way to put it. Mm. to the point that it actually it breaks her Mm. like she has a full and complete mental break at the end of this movie and it just hurts it hurts my heart like i actually really want to know what happened after the end i mean the, the last shot of this movie is beautiful it's fantastic the fade out of her walking towards the camera it's it is a wonderful way to end the movie but I want to know what happened to her. Was she institutionalized? Was she put in prison for murdering Joe? Like, how did this play out in her life? Do you actually want to see more of it? I don't think I want to see more. I just mm. want to know. I okay. want somebody okay. to tell me in this character's life, here's what happened. Because I feel like she generated such sympathy from me that I need closure for her story. And and yeah, it's her. I really like the way you're saying her quest to matter because it's not that. Again, potentially a, a more modern film would do her realizing the way she's been used and abused over the years and breaking out and finding some revelation in her life. She wants to get back to what she was. She wants to get back to pleasing these people and and getting the adulation she once had. Yeah, she has mm. a line um, that I set up in the intro. She she actually she just says, "I just want to work again." Mm. You know, and I I think work brings a sense of value, a sense of worth to our lives, and mm. she doesn't have that anymore. Yeah, she has this house that is a mausoleum to herself. 
there's nothing else for her. And honestly, we could probably have this whole conversation about how she could find things to do. She could go, I don't know, work part-time in a typing pool or something. (laughs) But (laughs) when you're used to being on the top, it's Mm. really, really hard to see yourself as anything else. And... And so by the end of this, you're absolutely right. She is a completely sympathetic character. Now, we could probably talk about her for a very long time. Because um, mm-hmm. there, there is a lot about the character and a lot that she goes through and the interesting things of her trying to write this script by hand. And, uh, you know, he actually can't read her writing that well. There, there's so much nuance and detail to it all the way through. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think she's a wonderful study on her own. But it's interesting because... That story about her and about Joe learning more about her life and trying to take advantage of her is not the only story in the film. There no, is a it's there not. is a whole subplot with a writer whose name I now cannot remember. Oh, what's the other character's name? Betty Schaefer. Betty, yes. Uh, there is a whole subplot with Betty critiquing his stories, suggesting other ways to write them that are quite good. Um, and them ending up writing a story together and possibly falling in love with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like, oh, I might get, I might get lynched for this one, but much like Singing in the Rain, some of this film could do without the romance plot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when it focuses on the actual, like, business of it, I really enjoy it. But I, I, I say that about Mad Men and things as well. When they focus on the, right. on the advertising stuff, it's really interesting. Um, but I think Betty's really interesting because when you finally find out her story, she did seek some of that adulation and appearance on screen and it wasn't going to happen for her. So she's found something else that appears to be fulfilling her. And she, she right. sort of understands her limitations and is, is working within them. She understands or, or thinks she understands she couldn't write something on her own. But Joe is a good writer when he actually applies himself. So perhaps he can help her. Right. Now, I really like the mute cute. I will say, I, I love the way she comes in and just starts tearing apart this story that he's written. Um, I, I love, I love that it shows her competence and her attitude to her work. Like, I'm not going to mince words. I'm just going to tell you this thing and we're just going to get on with it. I love her. I mean, the way she deals with it and says, Oh, I'm Betty Schaefer and I really wish a hole would open up beneath me now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all very, very good. Yeah, she's very confident in her ability and her opinions. Mm. And I think the contrast between Betty and Norma is just astonishing. Yeah. I mean, not even the age difference, just watching how these two women carry themselves. And Norma carries herself with an air of confidence, but it's completely fake, which we see in the way that she dresses and the photographs that she has all over her house and this constant reminder to herself that she is important to the world. Mm-hmm. And then we get Betty who is this just young woman who is living her own life on her own terms. And she is okay with that. Yeah. So the thing I'm wondering about Betty is, I mean, could they have done her character differently to make her, uh, closer to Norma's age, so you could draw a more direct parallel between them. Um, is, is there something about seeing Betty as a character within this that doesn't mean much to me because 
I'm not a young woman. I'm not a young woman working in Hollywood. Um, right. That does mean something, and particularly in the 50s, to see someone with a job doing it well and effectively. I mean, is it a character who particularly appealed to you as, oh, this is something different than anything else we've got in this film? I think so. I think what really appealed to me about Betty, and, and it's what you said, is that she had the same dream. She tried to do it. It didn't work out for her, and so she found something else. She didn't wallow in the fact that it didn't work out for her. And I mean, she went so far as to physically alter her appearance for mm. this dream that didn't work, and she's fine with it. And I think that is really the thing about Betty that I like the most. And that is the thing that Norma doesn't have. Because Norma pursued this dream. She did it really well. But then all of a sudden, things changed and they didn't want her anymore. She couldn't do it. I mean, she mm -hmm. didn't even have to physically alter her appearance. It's just this was a thing that she could not physically do. She could not do the dialogue. And instead of accepting that and finding something else, she wallowed in it for the next 30 years. Yeah. And Betty just said, okay, cool. They didn't actually like my acting, even though they loved my new nose. So <laughs> I'm going to do something else. And I'm still going to find it to do in the movie business because I love the movie business. And then she found something that she's really good at. Yeah, is that the thing that, again, a, a more modern film would take the opportunity to do? To They're both writers, but one is actually quite a good writer and does herself down. One is not a very good writer and has written 1,600 pages. And perhaps even then do parallels the other way of one is forging her own way in becoming a writer and working in Hollywood, but is also going through the motions of find a man, get engaged, get married. The, the uh, societal expectations of her. Yeah, I think that if we did a modern update of this, we Betty wouldn't even need to have a relationship. Yeah. Although, well, I don't know. The best version of this story, of the 1950s version of this story, mm -hmm. would have been absolutely, like you said, no romance subplot between Joe and Betty. I was so disappointed in that. Yeah. Because... She was engaged. You know, she had a boyfriend and then she was engaged and to his friend. that should have been it. Exactly. To yeah. his friend. He knew from the moment he met her and yet he still hit on her at that party. You know, and so the whole time, like you can read through my notes, I'm like, don't do this. You guys are going to get in trouble. He is your friend's girl. Do not do this. And it would have been so much better if they hadn't, if they had kept it professional writing relationship. Mm. And that's why I think that in, um, I don't know, if, if in a more modern retelling, she wouldn't need to be engaged, obviously. That's not a societal norm. She, she doesn't need that to be successful. But at the same time, that would be the thing that would keep her from having a romance with the other person. Mm. Ugh, I don't know. Why does romance have to be in everything? Well, yes, yeah. I, I, and I say this as a person who is in the process of watching all of the Hallmark Christmas movies right now. <laughs> you know, I love romance, but romance doesn't always make a story better. No, I think it is a thing. I, I'm not sure if it's still the case. I suspect it is that they believe they need it in films. 
to get people to watch it or get some of the audience to watch it? Maybe. Don't know. Um, it really just muddied the waters. Yeah. It, it forces you to add, and perhaps it's it's only what they used to do. It forces you to add 20 minutes to your plot because you have to have this, <laughs> you have to have the meet cute, you have to have bits of dialogue and then a falling out and a reconciliation at the end. Right. Mm. Okay. So wh- while we're talking about this really quick, Go can on. you maybe try to explain at least your interpretation of what happened between Joe and Betty? Because at first I thought, wow, he's actually choosing money over this woman he's in love with. But then after he sent Betty away, he decides to leave Norma. So he didn't choose money over love, but he didn't choose love either. So what is happening here? What am I missing? I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. Um, I like it as a resolution. I like it that no one ends up happy because this is not a film where anyone should particularly end up happy. Like you say, it's very dark. It's very sad. It is the best possible ending for Betty. Yeah. <laughs> I do believe that, honestly. It just felt strange because they've built up this romance. They've told each other they love each other. And then he goes out of his way to show Betty what he is. And makes her leave. But then he leaves too. Mm. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I think I expected at that point for him to stay and just be unhappy. (laughs) Instead of leaving and being unhappy. I don't know. I I think you can't have him ending up happy because he's been a bit villainous in this. Right. Um, And it's a film where I think if he'd ended up with the girl... And then shot, oh, then we'd have had too much darkness and sadness at the end. Because we would have had to have considered Betty in that if he had mm. been trying to leave with Betty. Um, yeah. And if he promises to stay, you don't get that ending. Right. But also that's, you know, if he just stays, that's not satisfying because you need a really good climax of drama. And because it's Joe's story, his death is a really good point to finish the story. Right. Hmm. I mean, overall, it makes sense, like, getting from A to B to C and connecting the dots and understanding why you have to do these things to get to the ending. I get that. It just, it was a weird beat. Yeah, the the motivation for you isn't quite there, is it? Right. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I think I'm perhaps more satisfied when it's, yeah, that's neat, that fits. (laughs) When when the pieces fit, not necessarily Mm -hmm. when the motivations fit. Right, mm. yeah. Okay, that makes mm. sense. There was a lot in this film. There was so a, a lot of detail. There were a lot of characters and moments and things. Are, are you able to pick out some things in this that were uh, particularly enjoyable to you, things that were your favourites? Honestly, everything that, that she did or said in this movie was just fantastic. Mm. When she was showing one of her silent films to Joe, when they're sitting there watching the movie, she has this line where she says... Still wonderful, isn't it? And no dialogue. We didn't need dialogue. We had faces. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, wow. She's, I don't know, she's fantastic. That's It's another good line. It's its a dig. She's, she's just trying to be all blustery and 
we were so good back then. And, and, I don't um, know. I just liked it. Particularly because when she says that line, she stands up into the beam of light from the projector. Oh, so, did she? so I it's, didn't it's that. like she's being filmed or she's on stage performing mm-hmm. that as well. It's, ah. Mm. And that's, that's the sort of detail that I don't expect from an older film because it is not always there. Right. In the same way, a lot of films, you know, people have grown up watching so many films and with access to lots of information and knowledge about doing these things, um, because the knowledge is passed on. This is the development of some of these things. Someone sees that and goes, I could make a whole film out of that. <laughs> and then eventually Robert Ullman play, makes the player and <laughs> other films about films. <laughs> if you say so. Hmm. <laughs> so I think my absolute favorite line that Gloria Swanson delivered in this movie is probably the best bit of dialogue in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. It, it's right after she met Joe and, and he's getting ready to walk out and, and he turns around and looks at her and is like, wait a minute, I know you. Didn't you used to be big? And she just stands up straight and she gets the most condescending look on her face and she says, I am big. It's the picture that got small. And that line is the first line that made me sit up and say, wow, this movie really is something. Yeah. Like, just the way she delivered it, the the line by itself is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and that comes pretty early on in the movie because that's, that's in their introductory scene. Mm-hmm. And from there to the end, I was – I had realized, okay, this is something special. You know, it's different than anything I've ever seen, but this is definitely something I should be paying attention to. It was fantastic. And it's the sort of thing in that one line, like you say, the delivery and the performance of it, as well as the writing of it, it mm-hmm. tells you so much about this character. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, there are probably, there is another page somewhere that got written, that got taken out of the script because uh, we've done it there. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you already mentioned this one, but Betty had a line when she first meets Joe because she had just walked in not realizing Joe's standing there and tells Mr. Shell Drake, you know, don't worry about this. This is terrible. It's trite, <laughs> derivative, blah, 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 whatever she says. And then she realizes Joe is standing there. The name is Schaefer, Betty Schaefer. Right now, I wish I could crawl in a hole and pull it in after me. And I don't think I've ever heard it quoted exactly like that or said exactly like that and and, i mean you can crawl into a hole out of embarrassment but wanting to pull the hole in with you (laughs) you know that's just like a whole other level yeah it's terrific this is again the sort of line a writer would use yeah 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 it was great and in that same scene we got that gone with the wind joke that i thought was hilarious Mm -hmm. it was basically they were talking about movies that had gotten passed on and um, or movies, she was listing reasons why not to do his movie or whatever. And, and he said, oh, I guess you passed on Gone with the Wind, too. And Mr. Sheldrake goes, no, that was me. I said, who wants to see a Civil War picture? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, that's great. Because he just has this look on his face of utter, like, shame. Yeah. I have gushed about Gloria Swanson a lot, <laughs> so... What is it about this movie that you really like? I know you said it was probably one of the best movies that you watched this year. Oh, yeah. It was, it was one of my 10 out of 10 films, easily. Okay. Um, of which there were not huge numbers, because, and certainly not huge numbers of new films that I hadn't seen that were 10 out of 10, because, you know, if I think I'm going to love a film, I'm going to see a film. 
Right. <laughs> it's a curated list after all. She has a lot of dialogue that's very, very good. And, and in that mm-hmm. scene as well, where she's sort of debating and denouncing cinema as it is now. And she has this whole long, no, it's not a long, it's not a diatribe. It's just her spitting venom at them <laughs> and and talking about Hollywood and cinema. And she says, writing words, words, more words. Well, you've made a rope of words and strangle this business. <laughs> but there's a microphone right there to catch the last gurgles and Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongue. So dramatic. It's like, oh, that's wonderful. And it's the sort of thing you can imagine her sitting there and thinking up sometime and practicing so that at some time she gets to tell someone from Hollywood what she really thinks of them. Yeah, she'd been (laughs) holding on to that one for a little while. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But not just her performance and her words are terrific. Her style is as well. Oh, absolutely. She's trying to keep up this look of the glamour queen that she has once had. But when she's lounging on the poolside, she has this great hat these wonderful glasses and this sort of long black wrap that starts um black around the torso and then becomes this leopard print skirt that also has leopard print trim at the top mm-hmm. and i think it was only because i noticed that when they finally go to the studio in her car the interior of the car is leopard print as well <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was. It's just sublime. It is just the, what's the most magnificent thing you could do at the time? Great. Leopard print. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) And there was one small thing that I thought was me discovering a reference in another film that that film was making to this. But it turns out this film is making a reference that that other film is referencing. So, have you ever seen AI artificial intelligence? I think so. Did that have... Jude Law? Jude Law and Haley Joel Osment. Yeah. So sadly, I'm going to have to talk about Jude Law. But Jude Law's character is called Joe, Jigolo Joe. And which might itself be a reference. Oh, I hadn't even thought that. Wow. Jigolo Joe could be a reference to this film. Anyway. Um, <laughs> when he meets people that he knows, they go, hey, Joe, what do you know? Hey, Joe, what do you know? Oh. And when he shows up at the New Year's party... His friend, whose name I can't remember, Betty's other half. Party. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, Joe says, well, what do you know, Joe? Well, what do you know, Joe Gillis? And I was like, oh, well, this must be where AI gets it from. Right. But it turns out there's a 20s jazz song that has the line, what do you know, Joe? Oh, what you know, Joe? I don't know nothing. As the chorus. Oh, okay. <laughs> Lots of referencing references. Yeah, so you just discover this stuff. But in, in saying all that to you, I'm like, is Joe Joe a reference to Joe in this one? Maybe. I need to look it that up. I, I, yeah, I have no idea. But it was hard to choose just a few things because everything is about this is great. The production of it, the quality of some of the writing, the performances in it, the, just the story as a whole is so well done. And and even despite that romance, the the plot that I don't think is nece- uh, necessary in it, it doesn't mm-hmm. detract enough. Where in Singing in the Rain, I, I felt they took a lot of time to deal with the romance stuff, which didn't need to be there. This, it did not detract too much. Because it's integrated into him writing and having a, uh, in inverted commas, you know, job on the side uh, to what he's doing with Norma. Right. Hmm. 
And then there's that ending, of course, isn't there? <laughs> Where, uh, like he makes a reference earlier about the waxworks coming over, and at the end, when she thinks she's being shot, and everyone goes absolutely still, like she's in some mm-hmm. sort of museum or, or waxwork mannequins around her. Right. Oh, it's terrific. Yeah. Her her descent down those stairs was pretty spectacular. Oh, yeah. It was a great entrance. Mm. Yeah. Um, something that you said a few minutes ago just reminded me that I wanted to talk about another very meta thing that was mm. in this movie. The the silent film that she shows Joe, that, of course, in the context of the movie, was one of Norma's movies. Um, it's a Gloria Swanson film called Queen Kelly. Okay. And that was directed by Eric von... St- how do you say his last name? Stroheim? Guy who played Max? Oh, everyone, yeah, Stroheim. Queen Kelly, an earlier film of Gloria Swanson's that was actually directed by Eric von Stroheim. Mm-hmm. Stroheim, however you say his name, I don't know. And this was the first time that that movie had been seen in the States. Oh, really? It was in Sunset Boulevard, yes. It was, there was a lot of controversy surrounding the movie. Um, it looks like Gloria Swanson walked off the sweat at the set at some point. Um, the guy who directed it actually didn't finish directing it. They had some kind of conflict. And so it never actually got released in the States. And so this was the first viewing of it ever. And I think it's fantastic. It's so meta. Mm, that's nice. And I, I like it when things are meta. Yeah, there's just, there is so much in this that I, I think, obviously, we can watch it now and appreciate the timeless nature of it, the quality of the story, the great performances. But imagine watching it at the time and going, oh, hey, it's that director. Oh, hey, it's Buster Keaton. Oh, hey, it's Cecil B. DeMille. Right. Oh, the director who is playing Max is actually the director who directed her in films. And just knowing that. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, apparently the guy who played Max hated the fact that he did it and for the rest of his life referred to it as that goddamn butler. Oh, really? (laughs) Just another trivia tidbit there for you. (laughs) Oh no, you get a great part like that in a film like this. I thought it was a pretty great part, honestly. Mm. All right. Is there anything else that we need to discuss about Sunset Boulevard? Okay, so we've talked a lot about what would they, uh, what would they change if this was made in a more modern way? Um, but, but let's take that further. If you were going to remake this now, uh, and to put this in context, the age that, uh, Gloria Swanson was when she made this film is the same age that Julia Roberts is now, and slightly younger than Sandra Bullock is now. That's so depressing. <laughs> The character was 50, which is also very depressing. Yeah, the character was the same age as Gloria Swanson. Okay. Um, uh, There was a whole interesting thing about how they started the film aging her up to make her look older, to make the the age difference between her and Joe more pronounced. But she said, Mm no, Norma will look like me. She is a woman of wealth who has looked after herself. So if you make me look old, it's not going to be real. You need to age him down. So they started Mm -hmm. doing stuff to make him look younger. Yeah. which is great and more power to her for all of that. And I think it doesn't necessarily translate in the same way now. But if they were going to do this, if we were going to find a star from the 70s, 80s, 90s who has been out of the limelight, who maybe rails against CG motion capture 
animated films dominating and it's not the sort of thing they want to do. Is there an actress that we could put in and expect to play this part with this same sort of commitment? I don't pay enough attention to celebrity news to know who might be avoiding movies on principle because they're different now. Mm. Um, so that is not part of my selection. My my first thought was just actresses who I know used to be very, very big. They were in blockbusters every year mm. and just haven't been seen much recently. And I, I went to Daryl Hannah mm. and maybe Goldie Hawn. Actually, I feel like I could see Goldie Hawn doing this kind of character more just because I feel... Like, I don't know. I feel like Goldie Hawn just has the stigma of glamour about her. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And and you need that for this specific type of character. Mm. But then I started thinking just because things are so much different now. And like you said, this character is the same age as julia roberts you know so we really need to go up into like this women who are in their 70s and 80s and so then i'm thinking jane fonda mm, jane fonda's still mm. working wonderfully yeah in some ways is this speaking to how it is a, uh, you know it's not a great industry from everything you hear but it is a different industry now the fact that yeah you know sandra bullock can lead a film still it's not as it once was that you only had women working with them in their 20s and 30s yeah. I, I think you're not going to get Sandra Bullock playing the love interest as often anymore. No. You know, you're going to get the younger ones. Um, I think even Scarlett Johansson has complained about that, that she doesn't, she gets passed over now because she's not young enough to be the love interest. But movies have changed enough that these women can still lead. Mm. You know, we've, we've recently had Ocean's 8. Mm-hmm. We, we've had, um, you know, Scarlett Johansson does hasn't had her own movie yet, but you know she's Black Widow. You know, we've got Jane Fonda in Grace and Frankie. I know there are other movies. I just I can't think of them. Like I know Helen Mirren is still leading movies. Mm. Um, she's but but they're never really love interest anymore, which is a whole other fight that that we need to get to. Um, but I th- I think we could significantly age up the character for a remake now yeah is it the difference that what was 50 in the 50s might now be like you say a 60s or 70s because it's not like it's a maggie smith or you know driving miss daisy Daisy, jessica tandy type age right yeah i'll have to think about that Mm. i I had a chat to Catherine about this we came up with two Mm -hmm. which may may not be any decent at all one was pamela anderson okay (laughs) Which could be interesting, except for all the baggage that brings. Um, right. The other one was Sharon Stone. Okay. Yeah, Sharon Stone is fits kind of in the same mm. as, like, Goldie Hawn era-ish. I could see that. I was also thinking maybe Meg Ryan, because she was America's sweetheart, and she's kind of disappeared. Yeah, that's a good show. Because yeah, everyone else, I can think of films they've done recently, you know, in indie flicks or, you know, being the mum to, uh, like Goldie Hawn was Amy Schumer's mum in a film recently. 
Right. Um, oh, she also had a, a cameo, and I don't know if if Netflix in the UK got their original Christmas movie this year called The Christmas Chronicles. Yes, I've not watched it yet. Uh, Kurt Russell plays Santa, mm. and I'm going to spoil this for you and for anybody else who hasn't seen it yet, but there's they reference Mrs. Claus throughout the entire movie. Okay. And at the very, very end, there's a cameo of Mrs. Claus coming in, and immediately I said, oh my God, that's going to be Goldie Hawn, and it was Goldie Hawn. Because didn't she and Kurt Russell do a film together, or several films? They're married. Are they? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Then well, yes, technically they did. not married. They are partners, but have been for like 30 years, 20 years, decades. Ah. So that's why. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. It's pretty great. But now that I'm thinking about Goldie Hawn, I'm also thinking about um, Meryl Streep. Are you thinking Death Becomes a... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. See, but yeah, Meryl Streep. When you look at, at films like Mamma Mia, you know the the um, the mum role is now mm-hmm. something that's actually allowed to be a big part of the film. And films about mothers and daughters, or mothers and their children. Yeah, um, it's not always about the children anymore. Yeah, it's it's when you think about it, movies really have changed a lot. You know, and mm. I know that there's still there's still a fight to to get equal billing with men especially since when you just look at the timeline of film history the balance is so heavy on the other side Mm. but it has changed a lot for the better and i i think talking about a movie like sunset boulevard really makes that clear oh i'll tell you uh, and this is obviously off conversations we had a few weeks ago I, I don't know that she's necessarily lost her celebrity or, or not making stuff in the same way, but I'll tell you who could play the part really well. Bette Midler. Oh, I would like to see that. I would really like to see that. And in some ways she hasn't done stuff for a while. Has she been on stage? Is that what she's... I think, yeah, she's, I know okay. she's done some stage touring and things like that, but... Oh, you I see, could, yeah, she could come in and rail against, oh, it's all auto-tuned now, and it's all sampled <laughs> and resampled and skinny dancers and... <laughs> right, yeah. I am big, it's the songs that got small. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic, it's yes. It's the waist sizes of the Ariana Grande. <laughs> oh, I think that is absolutely perfect. Yes, that that's a thing that needs to happen. Okay, there we go, Bette Midler. Uh, good. <laughs> All right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation and tell us who you think should star in a modern reboot of Sunset Boulevard, please use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. You can also send us an email at podcast at eloquentgushing.com, or you can leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash eloquentgushing. You can find us both on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Pop Culture Deprived is 100% funded by listeners like you through Patreon. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, gives access to exclusive content and helps to support the network and develop new shows. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to visit our website, eloquentgushing.com. You can find all our other shows, including some exciting new Discovery of Witches shows and everything else that you can subscribe to on the website homepage, eloquentgushing.com. And we'll be back next week with another episode where we will talk about Working Girl with Anna McGlamory. Until next time, I'm Andy Kay. And you heard him. I'm a star. Yes, you are, Matthew.
Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at eloquentgushing.